0: Thank you, Dr. Bowles. <clears throat> if you would remain standing, I want you to read together with me from Romans chapter 8, verse 1. If you've been around here, you know we're walking through 1 Corinthians and we will get there. But I want you to see first the foundation for what we're going to talk about today in God's Word. So let's read Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Therefore, no condemnation now exists for those in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Today we're going to talk about the subject of divorce, because that's what comes next as we are walking through First Corinthians. And I wanted you to read with me Romans chapter eight, verse one, because I want you to remember what Paul has already established in the context of this letter. He's already been teaching his people that the most foundational reality for them is what God has done on their behalf through the work of Jesus Christ, their Savior. He's already established that in Jesus, all who come to him are receiving God's you-are-not-guilty declaration over them. And so today, if If you're a follower of Jesus, if you have uh, trusted yourself to him, then these words that we read from Romans chapter 8, verse 1, they apply to you. There is no condemnation for you in Christ Jesus. There's no condemnation, regardless of your past mistakes or the things that have been done to you. The great hope that we have is that in centering our lives on Jesus through faith, that God is speaking over us, even today, there's no condemnation. And this is especially important as we come to the subject of divorce, because in the context of the church, oftentimes what happens is one of two reactions when this comes up. Uh, One is to kind of ignore it, to just sort of sweep it under the rug because it's awkward and uncomfortable, and uh, we're just not sure what to do with that. And that's not very helpful, and certainly doesn't give us an option. If we're going to continue to walk through God's word, we have to wrestle with what does the Bible teach on this particular subject. And the other reaction that unfortunately happens is for people to to jump to a snap decision to say, you know what, uh, God hates divorce, and so if uh, you have done that, uh, you are a part of that, then you are under God's judgment, and that doesn't help either because it doesn't deal with what. God's Word actually says. And so at the outset, we have to remind one another that all of us in Christ are living under God's no condemnation. And the Apostle Paul has already established that in the context of this letter, and we need to remember it before we jump in midstream. So are you all ready to jump in now? That's emotionally ready. I'll take that. Uh, I know it's kind of hot today, so we'll just, uh, we'll just, keep, on, uh, we'll just keep on going. All right, so what's going to happen here is Paul's going to lay out some specific situations and give some guidance on how to handle them. And so we're just going to walk through one at a time. If you've got your Bible, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We're going to start in verse 10 when he lays out his first, first a guidance to a situation that the Corinthians had asked him about. He says this, verse 10. I command the married... Not I, but the Lord. He's talking about Jesus. A wife is not to leave her husband. Now let's pause for a second and talk about why Paul would say that. Likely what had been happening in the context of this Corinthian church was what had been happening all over uh, Corinth and the Greco-Roman Empire. A marriage in this particular context was, was not treated as the place to find romance or love, um, certainly nothing like what we would describe as a covenant relationship. That was not the context for marriage in the Greco-Roman era. The marriage was something to be used for one's personal preferences, or uh, even more so for one's advancement. Think about it like, um, like a, a high school football coach. They might get a first job as an assistant at a really small program and then they do pretty well and they get an offer to move up and so they get, um, they get a head coaching job uh, and then they, they realize that they can get another job at a bigger program. They can move up to a 4A school. And so they jump over there and take that job until they can move up, until they can get into a 5 or a 6A program, maybe even get a college gig. And so they just, they're always looking around, trying to find the next best gig. If you're a college football coach, my apologize, uh, I apologize for characterizing your profession that way. Um, but you know what happens. And so but here's what was happening for the Corinthians. They were treating marriage like that particularly the, the women, which is kind of strange for us to think about. But in the, the Corinthian context, the women couldn't advance by their work or uh, by, by getting elected to some position of influence. The only way that a woman could advance in this culture was to trade out husbands. And so they were always looking for the next best deal. And if they could find a husband who had more money or more influence or more status then they drop their current husband and go on to the next one, because that's how they advanced. And so what, what Paul is doing is he's responding to questions that the Corinthian church had asked. Some of you are thinking, I wish I could trade up my husband, right? No, I'm just, uh, don't, don't go there, don't go there. He's responding to questions that the church had asked, and, and they had said, well, what do we do about this, Paul? We've got a problem. Within our church, there are believing wives who are just walking out on their husbands, uh, their believing husbands. And, uh, and how are we supposed to handle this? And so Paul, in the strongest possible way, says, look, if, if a believer is married to a believer, then you've got to do marriage the way that Jesus said it was to be done. And that means it's not about your preference or your advantage. It is about this covenant relationship that points to Jesus' relationship with his church. And so, to remind the people of what he's talking about, he says, remember Jesus' command. Jesus talked about this. Now, there's several places, but I'll just read you one of them. This is Matthew chapter 5, verse 32, where Jesus commands that husband and wife are supposed to stay together. Jesus puts it this way. I tell you, Everyone who divorces his wife, except in a case of sexual immorality, causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Jesus had strong words to say about the nature of marriage. And Paul calls these Corinthians to remember the command of Jesus. If a believer is married to, an, to another believer, and there's not been sexual infidelity, then the expectation, no, the, the commandment from Jesus is that you stay married. This is what's right and morally good. Paul reminds them of this in some strong terms. This was what the pastor once who told me a story about a guy who came into his church, to his office. He knew him. He was uh, known in their church and respected in their community, and, uh, and the pastor had a personal relationship with him. And the man sat down uh, in his office, and he said, Pastor, I just I need to tell you something that's kind of hard for me to say. I'm going to leave my wife. There's this other lady that I've met, and when I'm with her, I just feel happier. I feel more fulfilled. And I, I think that God would want me to be happy. And so I'm going to leave my wife. And the pastor listened to him talk about why and those sort of things and didn't say anything. And then finally, when he was done, he said to the man, You know, I know you carry a picture of your, your kids. Uh, can I see that picture of your children? So the man pulled out of his wallet the picture of his kids, and he said, yeah, this is my favorite picture of them. I take it everywhere I go. And he handed it to the pastor. The pastor looked at that picture of his kids, and then he ripped it to shreds right in front of him. And the man said, what do you do that for? That was my picture. I love that one. Why'd you tear it up? And the pastor said, if you go through with what you are saying, you will be the one shredding your children. And it won't just be a picture. It will be their hearts, and their lives, and their futures. It was a powerful picture of what's at stake in marriage. God has designed it not for our preferences, not for our advancement, not even for us to feel fulfilled, though those are things that God may give us as good gifts. God designed marriage to be a new person formed out of two coming together, a new community being shaped. And every divorce, regardless of the circumstances, is always a death of a person. And there's always fallout in the relationships around it. Children, friendships, extended family. Everybody suffers when one marriage dies. And so Paul reminds these Corinthians in the strongest possible terms, if you are believers together in marriage, stay in that marriage. Marriage. And we're going to talk about some other situations here in just a minute. But let's just stop right here. If you are married and you're flirting around with another relationship, and maybe you're actively engaged in an affair or an adulterous relationship, then it is your responsibility to stop it now. If you continue down this road and you attack and destroy that which God has created, then you need to know that you are inviting not just the wrath of your spouse, but the wrath of God upon your head and your family. And so it's got to stop We are called as Christians to a different kind of marriage than what our culture carries. So it matters what we do in it. But Paul understood that there were there were realities, complex realities at work in Corinth. And there are complex realities at work in our own lives and relationships today. And so he goes on from that first situation to describe another one. Look at verse 11. But if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And a husband is not to leave his wife. Here, what Paul is, is realizing is that there are already people in this church There were already wives in the church who had left their husbands, who had already walked out on them. And so he realizes that he's going to be giving a command and instruction to some folks who'd already broken it. And so he says to them, look, if you are in that situation, if you have initiated a divorce for some grounds other than what Jesus said was allowable, which is infidelity, then your responsibility is to remain single, that is not to get married, or to pursue reconciliation with your husband. This is not what you sort of hear on the TV or the magazines today. But this is what God's Word says is the responsibility of a Christian who has made a mistake like that in the past. And they hear now, oh, that was wrong. Now, for some of us, you might be thinking, well, um, what if I've already got married to somebody else? Or maybe I'm on my second or third marriage. We'll talk about that in just a few minutes. For now, the specific situation that Paul's addressing is when a Christian has divorced another Christian and he's calling them to remain single or return to that marriage. That's the specific instructions. But then he goes on to a third situation. This is verse 12. But I, not the Lord, say to the rest. Who's the rest? Well, the rest that he's about to address are the Christians who are married to a non-Christian in the context of the church. That's the rest of the people. And this was very common back then, and, and frankly, it's common even today. What was happening here was there was two people who got married prior to coming to faith in Jesus. And then one of them would become a Christian. And so now you have the situation. There's a believing spouse and an unbelieving spouse. What are they supposed to do? Here's what Paul says. If any brother, that's a Christian, has an unbelieving wife, and she is willing to live with him, he must not leave her. Also, if any woman has an unbelieving husband, and he is willing to live with her, she must not leave her husband. So, the easy, easy guidance here, if you are a Christian married to a non-Christian and they're willing to stay in that relationship, you should do so. But, but I want you to see why. Because it's really a profound statement. Verse 14. For the unbelieving husband is set apart for God by the wife. And the unbelieving wife is set apart for God by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be corrupt. But now, they are set apart for God. Here's what I don't want you to miss. Those word, that word translated set apart in this translation, if you're reading in the NIV or the New American Standard, you'll see that it says sanctified, That's the actual word in Greek. It's the word that means sanctified. If you read in the ESV, it's going to say made holy, which means the same thing. When the Apostle Paul says, your husband or your wife or your children are set apart, he is saying that in some way they are made holy, sanctified. Does that mean that they are saved? No. This does not teach that the faith of the believing spouse saves the unbelieving spouse. That's not what Paul is saying. Nor does it mean that the faith of a parent saves, that is, justifies or, or rescues from God's ultimate judgment, their children. That's not what he's teaching. When he says they are made holy or sanctified, what he is saying is that one Christian in a household is enough to bring the blessing of God's presence to the whole house. Because that's what being made holy is all about. It's about being in the presence of God. Think about it this way. Suppose my wife receives an outstanding inheritance from her rich uncle. I don't think she has one, otherwise I'd have met him already and we'd have had this conversation, so I think I'm safe in using this analogy. Suppose he dies and leaves her a bunch of money. Do you know what happens to me on the day that she receives that money? I'm rich! (laughs) Did I do anything? No! Was I a part of that relationship? No! But the nature of marriage is such that if one spouse is blessed and receives this immense inheritance, the other spouse gets the benefit of it. And so also do our kids. College is paid for. We'll go to Baylor after all. It's going to be all right. (laughs) One spouse blessed can bless the whole house. So what Paul is saying is, look, look. This is far greater than an inheritance. One spouse who is connected through Jesus Christ with the God of the universe has the power that is able to create out of nothing At work in that home, how could you not see the blessing of God coming across a home that doesn't even deserve it for the sake of one Christian? I love how Pastor John MacArthur puts it. He he said that that one Christian in a home is enough to make that a Christian home. It's true, Because the power and presence of God at work in one is able to influence and impact many. And so if you are that one in your home, be encouraged. God's power is enough for you. The great news is that holiness is more contagious than unholiness. And so even if you're having to conflict with an unbelieving husband or wife on the issues of how to spiritually raise your children, you should be encouraged that holiness wins. The power of God wins. and So be faithful and love your spouse the way that Jesus has loved you And you will bring a blessing upon your home because of the presence of God in you. But that's not the only situation. Paul goes on to describe another one. That's harder. Verse 15. But if the unbeliever leaves, let him leave. A brother or sister is not bound in such cases God has called us to live in peace. He says here that if the unbeliever in the house decides that they've had enough of the tensions of of whether or not we're going to follow Jesus in our marriage and in our finances and with our children, which are always real when there is an unbelieving spouse and a believing spouse, which is why, by the way, the Bible says that a believer should not marry an unbeliever because it immediately puts you in conflict because you're operating out of two different value systems. But Paul says, look, if that's where you're at when you came to faith and the unbelieving spouse wants to go, let him go. This is not required. It's not Expected, it's not preferable. But just like Jesus, Paul says, Look, there can be situations that are so broken that that covenant bond has been so broken that the death has occurred. That's why he uses the word not bound. He will describe the same thing in verse 32 to describe what happens when two believers are married and one of them dies, physically dies. The surviving spouse is no longer bound to that marriage. And so, he argues there, they may remarry. Which is why the apostle here says, look, if this is your situation, where you're a believing spouse and you have been faithful as best you know how, and, and your unbelieving spouse walks out and leaves you, then you are not bound in the same way that the spouse of one who becomes a widow or a widower is not bound, which means there is a freedom to remarry here. It's not a, an encouragement or requirement to remarry. Because what the Apostle Paul has said and will say in the next few verses is that it's better to not be married. And so you need to discern before God whether or not you fit into the category of one who ought to marry if you're not right now. But there is a freedom here. And he grounds it by saying, because we are called to peace. One of the situations that can occur and sadly does occur is that a marriage gets so broken because one spouse is physically emotionally or verbally abusing the other. And what you need to know, if that's you, if you are in an abusive relationship what you need to know is that you, you need to first get safe, get to a safe place before you are in any position to discern whether or not that relationship can continue. And if you counsel somebody, if someone comes to you and says, I'm being, my husband's beating me, you need to help that person Get to a safe place and then begin to process and discern what needs to happen next because the call for us in our homes is peace. And until an abusive spouse is confronted that something is wrong, there can't even be a possibility for reconciliation, much less peace. And so with great care and wisdom, we as God's church must be ready to recognize when things are broken and instead of responding in condemnation or in brushing aside and saying, well, I just don't want to talk about that or I don't know what to do, we need to be people who together go into those spaces for one another and help create a safe place so that discernment can happen because it may be that an abusive spouse though they may claim to be a Christian are are just not and it may be that they are functionally abandoning their responsibilities as husband and in that case That abused spouse is free. And we should not bind their consciences otherwise. Well, what about when things are so messed up that you're not sure where this fits? Well, the good thing about God's Word is that it continues to speak even to circumstances that we've not covered here. You might look at your life and say, I mean, when I think about my marriages, plural, it's kind of like a scrambled egg. And I don't know how to unscramble all of this. We'll be encouraged that God's no condemnation still is spoken over you. And the place to look will be what Paul will say in verse 24, where he says, remain in the situation in which you were called. So that is to say, if today you realize, man, I've made a mess of this whole marriage thing, and I'm not even sure which person God would say would be my, uh, my, my spouse. If it's a mess, then what you do is you start today, because today God is calling you to a holy life before him. Today, It's an opportunity for you to say, okay, Father, I've made a mess of the past. I'm going to surrender what I have to you and give you my future. You'll need to seek forgiveness and look for counsel. But know that God has called you to peace. So don't make more scrambled eggs. Stay put where you're at. And then seek the counsel of godly Christians around you who can help you discern what steps need to be taken. And for all of us, we live under a pretty important implication of this whole subject. And it doesn't have to do with our relationship with our spouses. Look at uh, verse 16 For you, wife, how do you know whether you will save your husband? Or you, husband, how do you know whether you will save your wife? What the Apostle Paul does here is he points out that there are some moments and situations in our lives where we're just confronted with what is true all the time, and that is we don't know what the future holds. We can't predict it infallibly. Certainly we can't control or manipulate it. Sometimes we're faced with the realization in life that we just don't know what happens next. And in that moment, we will make a choice. We will either choose fear and try to control and predict and manipulate things on our own. We'll try to discern whether or not the grass really is greener on the other side with that other person or to choose freedom and say I don't have to know what comes next because I know the one who does. I don't have to control the future because I know the one who does. I don't have to try to, uh, to pre- prevent things from happening that I don't like because I trust the one who can. The implication for all of this is the realization that there's only one who knows what's coming next. And for us to experience the freedom he's called us to will require us trusting his hand to protect and provide, to restore, to redeem. And the good news is The God that we serve is that kind of a God who protects and provides and restores and redeems in ways that are far beyond our ability. So when you face that moment of fear or freedom, trust him. Choose freedom. Let's pray. Father, we recognize we can't control you. It's not just that we can't control the people around us, but we can't control or manipulate you. So, would you forgive us for when we've tried? Would you... Would you cause your mercy and your grace, your no condemnation, to speak to that place in our heart too? And would you birth in us a faith that is able to look at the broken reality around us and say, God, I can't fix this, but I'll trust myself to you. Would you show your power to redeem? Would you show your willingness to restore? Would you show your ability to rescue? And would you let us be a people who live in freedom because of who you are? We pray this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.